Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. We have an exciting podcast for you because it's an exciting Parsha. We are on Parshat Shoftim. The book of Deuteronomy is flying by on us, and I am privileged to be here with my friend and colleague and teacher and neighbor, Tovalea Nachmani, who's been teaching at Pardes for quite a long time. Hello, Tovalea. Welcome. Shalom Tzvi. So we are on Parshat Shoftim, and among other things, Parshat Shoftim, Moshe is instructing the people how their society is to be led and organized. And so I understand for you that this topic really resonates with you. Very much so. In the four chapters of this week's Torah portion, Shoftim, Moshe's parting speech to the people is revealing to the nation that he loves and is about to bid farewell to. He's revealing to them the dangers, the threats, and the pitfalls of leadership. And most importantly, the irrefutable secrets of what makes national leaders great. And that's what troubles me today. And I want to talk about that. Okay. So we will get there. And I guess it's particularly poignant. Moshe is leaving and there's nothing more scary or difficult for a leader who knows that they're not going to be able to lead. And now they're concerned who's going to take my place and who's going to lead in my behalf. So what does the Torah recommend for the Jewish people about how we are to be led? So there's three or four pillars of national leadership that the Torah requires the Jewish people to create when they become sovereign in their own land. And that's what Moshe is trying to explain to the people. There's a judicial pillar, righteous judges. There's a political pillar, and that's having a head of state, somebody who can hold everything together, which in the Torahs the the Torah the is king. the king, exactly. And there's a spiritual, religious, ritual pillar, and that's the priest. There's also prophet, and he's the one who's sort of the checks and balances. He gets to tell people He's the least popular of all the leaders, and he gets to tell people what they're doing wrong. Yeah, people don't always like someone who says that to them. And so the question I want to ask is, what are the roles of these leaders, and what are the potential dangers that are inherent in the powers that they hold, and what stipulations and warnings does the Torah pose for each of those positions? So the Torah is positing really a network, if you will, of leadership or powers or division of powers. And just so we're there with you, there's the judicial authority of the Shoftim, who are going to rule on laws, I guess, and all connected to the legal system. There's the king, the Melech, who's the political authority, and you're saying the Kohen, that is the religious spiritual leadership of the nation. Correct. I'm going to start with a story. The story is going to actually be something that ties into this theme all the way through. I'm going to give this story a title, which is Looking Beyond Our Own Reflections. So when people walk by a car, what do they tend to do? So many people tend to look at the window to get a glimpse of their own reflection. I did that recently. And the woman in the car smiled at me and waved. That was embarrassing. That is, oh, you didn't know she was in there? <laughs> no, I didn't know she you was in there. thought it was the empty car. That's right. So here's an unforgettable true story that happened just last week in Israel about looking at car windows. So a man in a small town in central Israel parked his car in the parking lot by his apartment building. He locked his doors and he began walking toward his front door. But instead of walking with his eyes glued to his cell phone or walking absentmindedly, he did what he always does, a practice he created for himself. He walked up and down the row and he peered into the windows of all the parked cars in the area to make sure that there were no children left in the cars. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's just so sad that someone needs to do that. But yes, that is a phenomenon that happens, unfortunately. So he glanced into one car after another and suddenly he discerned a young child in the back seat of a parked car that was locked. It was a hot summer afternoon, so he rushed closer to see how to help the child get out of the car. And in a moment, he realized that the child was his own son, 
who had been brought back by a neighbor from his day camp and apparently had fallen asleep in the car. So he recognized, thank God, he recognized the owner of the car, who was his neighbor, and he quickly phoned him and had him run down with the keys. So what happened is what often happens, sadly, is that when the other children in the car had jumped out and closed the car doors half an hour earlier, neither they nor the driver had turned around to make sure all the kids were out. And this young father actually saved his own child's life. So this man, who's actually a volunteer EMT, he prevented a horrible disaster by making it his regular habit to never be off-duty. So if there's anything I hope to accomplish this summer, it's to make a new habit of not being off-duty. I hope to change that habit of looking into car windows, not to see my own reflection, but to see that no children are locked inside. Wow. Okay. So tell me how this story inspired you to think about what a leader is. So the three pillars of leadership that we're going to talk about, the first one is the judicial pillar. The mitzvah from the Torah is to appoint judges who are not only knowledgeable about the details of social and criminal law, but also righteous people who will judge honestly and correctly. Rashi says to us on this verse in chapter 19, he says, caution, because a person can know everything about law, but they can have agendas that are antithetical to morality or to the spirit of Jewish law and tradition. And so he says, be careful. Is it really possible for a judge to be impartial? So danger number one, you're saying, really there are two implicit there. Number one is if we only appoint people by how much they know, that's not actually what the Torah wants. Like a lot of us, especially in more traditional cultures, are very used to thinking the person who knows the most is the person who should make these decisions because they know the most. If you know the most Torah, then you can give the most Torah-driven answer. And here you are telling us, not necessarily. The Torah is not only interested in getting the detail right. It's the situation and the moral and ethical and societal need this person has to be sensitive to. And the second piece is that that doesn't always come with more and more knowledge. The person who sits and absorbs more and more and more facts and details and can quote more and more, that may not be the person who, as you put it, understands the ethical or spiritual needs of that moment. Exactly. So what's the key to being a righteous judge? One of the great teachers of Rav Cook's writings and worldview, Rav Aviner, in his book Tal Hermon on the Torah portion, he writes that the key to being a righteous judge is the ability to embrace machloket, to see an issue from as many perspectives as possible. Machloket, differences of worldview, is an essential part of reality because just as people were created with different faces, he writes, and different fingerprints, they were created with different ways of thinking. And those differences are not to be silenced. The aim isn't to be victorious over your opponents when it comes to the judicial rulings. Machloket, or disagreements, stemming from diverging perspectives, so one of the very foundations of Jewish tradition. And it's really the only way to clarify and deepen our understanding of an issue. There's a classic Talmudic story in Baba Metzia of two famous learning partners, Rabbi Yochanan and his student, Reish Lakish. Yeah, this doesn't end well, folks. I'm preparing you. Trigger <laughs> warning. <laughs> so Reish Lakish dies, and Rabbi Yochanan was terribly distressed. So the sages sought out and found him a new chavruta, a new learning partner. And for every theory that Rabbi Yochanan posed, his new partner would bring him more and more logical and textual support and proof for his theory. And Rabbi Yochanan was exceedingly distressed and disappointed with this chavruta. And he said to the Haruta, don't you realize that I already think that I'm right? <laughs> I don't need you to support me. My Haruta, Reish Lakish, was the best Haruta ever because for every one of my positions, he would bring me 24 challenges. And because I had to work hard to answer every one of his 24 challenges, it made me a deeper thinker and helped me to clarify the issues. You know, it's beautiful because in that story, Reish Lakish dies because he and Rabbi Yochan have a fight and it gets personal. Yeah. 
And it just shows you it's so hard to both debate, but debate in such a way where you are truly open to the other person. You're not taking the debate personally. Someone disagrees with you. They're not attacking me. They just see things differently. So even the great Rabbi Yochan Reish Lakish had a moment where even they were challenged by that. But what you're telling us now is that our judicial leadership the ones who are going to try to figure out what it is the Torah wants from us in our ritual lives, in our social lives, and the way we run our society, not only have to be knowledgeable, they also have to be open. They have to have a, a level of humility where they don't see opposing views as personal attacks or challenges, but really opportunities to learn. Amazing. And maybe that's why we have the double word, Sedek. Sedek to Dov. Beautiful. You need right. both pieces. You need both. That, that might be an original thought for this podcast, folks. So if any of you use it out there, you have to attribute to Tovalei Nachmani. So, so in summary, yeah, what I want to say leadership. is that, yeah, that how does this relate back to the story? Because I want to take it back to the story. So the judges must be looking not at their own reflection in the car window, meaning the judges must not assume that they are right based on their own worldview. They must be looking deep into each and every car, as it were into every issue to see that no one has been left to suffocate because of their negligence, because of their own negligence. And that's an enormous responsibility. Yes, it is. And I think it's also, it seems we have a system that, again, encourages so much internal knowledge and like acquiring knowledge. It's very easy to get into the trap of only looking in your own car window, if you will. And you think you're doing the right thing. You think, of course, my car window has everything. I just have to master it. And you can really forget that there are a lot of car windows out there. And you have to look in and not just look for what to confirm your worldview. Oh, that sounds very hard. I'm glad I'm not a judicial leader. Okay, so those are the judges that the Jewish people need. The second pillar is the political pillar. So the pitfalls of political power are clear. Historically, the more power a king has, the more dangerous a king can be. And kings have been exceptionally dangerous for society. I looked up on the internet, how many benevolent kings have there been in history? So I think there have been a handful at least. I'm not going to start naming them, but you know, many kings have really been responsible for wreaking havoc yeah. in their societies. If you learn the Book of Kings, it's not filled with positive examples or role models of the monarchy and that leadership. That's one of the things I love about the Torah. Is the Torah is honest. It just tells the honest truth and doesn't try to whitewash really, you know, what is for Am Yisrael, for the Jewish people. Yeah, the one thing we know, the Book of Kings was not written by somebody who was friends with the kings. It was written by somebody who was extraordinarily honest and willing to say how it was. Yes, fortunately. So kings held for themselves the ultimate power to coerce their subjects, to kill their opponents, and to make their subjects tremble before their very presence. That's a classic behavior of a king. So Moses warns the Jewish people that if they choose to be ruled by a king like all the nations around them, if they want to be a regional power like the neighboring nations who aspire to glory and fame and wealth and conquests, their national enterprise in the land of Israel would ultimately fail. Ask the question, is it possible for a king to rule but without pursuing too many horses, which is military power, too many women, which is diplomatic power, and too much wealth, which is financial power? Those are the stipulations Moshe lays down for them. He said, if you're going to have a king, those are the conditions. And really, the most powerful person in the country actually is challenged to become quite powerless. Or at least have limits, because it's a very challenging thing, at least from the Torah's perspective. There needs to be someone who has that level of power, right? As it points out, some medieval Jewish thinkers like the Ron say, and the Rambam, that the king has to fill in the gaps where the judicial model can't solve the problem, right? You have a mass murderer, but there are no witnesses. But everyone knows it's that person. 
It's a known fact. Only the king can intervene to solve that problem. The judicial authority is limited by the procedures of the law. But at the same time, the fact that you've given this person so much power to act according to their own, you know, what they think is best in that moment, we are putting ourselves at terrible risk. And that king, I think, as you're pointing out, can easily confuse sort of the well-being of the nation with their own personal power and well-being and end up justifying all these excesses in the name of the people, even though they really really are serving oneself, which of course brings us back to your beautiful metaphor, the challenge of not looking at oneself when they have this type of power. Right. So the verse from the Torah that explicitly says that is that the king must be chosen from among your brother, meaning he has to be a brother. He has to see himself as part of the family so that he will remember that he's really one of the people. And he must not allow his heart to be pumped up again with arrogance, which also brings the word ach, brother, that that he needs to have these limits to his power. And even with the limits, he needs to remember all the time that he's just one of the people and he needs to be able to lead them and actually be a civil servant as he is strategizing and leading the entire country. Yeah, again, like before, I guess the challenge is we're not pinpointing specific requirements. We're trying to identify an attitude. Really a fundamental attitude of humility, which I think moves through this whole piece and a sense of responsibility for others that in a way, if the person is not there, there's almost no rule that can force them in. They'll always find a way around. And I think if a person is there, these rules will simply reflect who they are and what they want to be anyways. I think the Torah even says one of the ways we're going to help him solve it is he has to carry something around with him, I believe, right? That's right. How does a king have both authority and humility? The king must write for himself or have someone write for him two Torah scrolls. So why two, not one, two, count them. So one to keep at home and one to take with him wherever he goes. Not as a good luck charm, but to study, to be constantly challenging himself, to be looking at the shiny windows of his subjects in the kingdom, not in order to take pleasure in seeing the reflection of his glistening crown, as it were, but in order to see the people who are inside. He needs to rule with intelligence, wisdom, and authority, the Torah says, but without arrogance over the people he rules. That's a tall order. And a king can only be from your brethren. Your king is your brother, just as the Torah also says that your slave is your brother, and your Kohen is also, that word brother repeats itself over and over, right, for these both positions of leadership and also positions of inferiority or lack of power. It's always inviting that problem, how to give people power and authority, but maintaining their sense of humility and that that power and authority is not about them. It's about their ability to serve their brothers, their family, their people, their nation. Not easy to do. No, not easy at all. Based on our track record, at least, not easy to do. That's right. Micha Goodman, in a podcast that he gave, he says that the word brother is a metaphor that limits and ultimately undermines the hierarchy. And on some level, it forces the king to actually live with that tension all the time of knowing he's responsible, he's the boss, he's the final word, the final say, and at the same time, he's really there. He has to see what's good for the people, not what's good for him. So the judge is always going to be tempted by asserting their own view and thinking they're the smartest in the room and everything should be the way they think it should be. And the king is always going to be tempted by this sense of power and being above everybody and ultimately their ego and their sense of self and seeing everything is related to them. Exactly. This is going to be very hard. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on, I just want to say the king must become, as we say at Pardes, a lifelong learner of Torah. And so what does that give him, right? What does it give to us, right, to learn Torah? So learning Torah, there's two things that come to mind for me that learning Torah means having one eye on reality and how things are and how society is with all of its flaws and having the other eye on what we can strive for. Ideals. Right, the ideals that we can strive for, for sure. 
Virtues. Yes. Not being afraid to strive higher and higher, to be thirsting for a better and better situation, and also being able to accept the reality and human failings as they are part of the DNA of creation. And the other thing, learning Torah means embracing Mahalokit. It's listening to the perspective of Shammai if you're a Hillel, and of Hillel if you're a Shammai. Right? The Torah comes not just with the written word, but it comes with the oral tradition, which is all about Mahalokit. It's all about hashing out different perspectives. You know, Shivim Panim, there's 70 faces, and it's endless. And I think I would add also the Torah is, according to tradition, it's God's word, it's God's command. It reminds the king that there's actually a lawgiver out there who's more important than me. That's right. Whose laws have eternal value and eternal wisdom, and maybe I should listen to those and not only think of myself as the ultimate authority. There's a fascinating section in Tomer Devorah by uh, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero talks about imitating God. One of the things we call God is king. The one is we relate to God, and one of the roles that we place upon God is king. In every blessing, we invoke God's title as king of the universe. And one of the greatest ironies about God as king is that while God is exceedingly powerful in God's creative capabilities, the people who God created use their God-given limbs to steal. They use their God-given minds to plan deceitful acts, and they give their God-given hearts to lord over others and be arrogant. And yet God is patient, and God is tolerant, and God gives people freedoms to choose and the freedom to behave as they wish. God asserts his kingship by not imposing his power and giving people freedom. Giving direction, laying out the rules clearly and fully, but not imposing. And respecting their freedom to choose. That's Beautiful. Right. Okay, the third pillar of leadership. Ready? I'm ready. For that? Okay, so the third pillar of leadership is the priests and Levites. So we know the priests and the Levites don't own real estate. They don't get to own a piece of land in the land of Israel. They don't receive an ancestral portion of land. They don't own farmland so that they can devote themselves primarily to serving the people and facilitating Torah education and spiritual practice in the temple. Therefore, the Torah provides for their livelihood by assigning them gifts from the offerings of the people. And one might think that the priests have really easy life of privilege because they receive their food and livelihood from the people. They're not out there sweating in the field like the people are. The Kohanim and Levim are not elected. They're chosen by their ancestry to this day. And so they have this privilege. Yeah, it does sound like a good deal, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can't opt into it. No, so you can't. Not, you right. can't join. You got to be right. born into the club. So there's something about the priestly blessing, which if I understand correctly, you can help me with this. In Israel, we say every day, the priest bless the community every day with the priestly blessing, every correct. prayer. Uh, no, only Shacharit. Yeah, and Shachri, thank Shachri, you. And, yeah. uh, and Musaf, if there's Musaf. Okay, got it. So that's the priests are basically blessing the people. And so today we don't have the priests serving in the role of educators and what have you, but we do have them blessing the people. And the priests, the chosen ones who no Israelite can compete with or replace, you can't go up to the Torah and pretend that you're a Kohen if you want to be. So before they bless the people, they bless God for sanctifying them with the commandments and commanding them to bless the people with love. So to be chosen by birth, to be privileged more than any of your peers, one needs to say this blessing over and over every single time they get up to say the blessing in order to try to remove any arrogance that might linger in their hearts. A priest, before he gets up to bless the people, he removes his shoes. So he's really like lowering himself a little bit right down there in his socks, right on the ground. He faces the community, but he covers his face with a talit. And he ends the priestly blessing with the words, they shall place my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. Meaning they, the priests, shall place my, God's name, upon the children of Israel and I, God, will bless them. Who's them? The Jewish people or the Kohanim, right? Is God actually the one blessing the children of Israel or 
blessing the Kohanim. You're not being blessed right now, you're doing the blessing, so don't worry, you're going to get a blessing. And really, the Kohanim are the most powerful people spiritually, but they are only a vessel. They're only a conduit, like an electrical conduit, that they bring the blessing of God to the people. You know, it's interesting. About that verse, it's a machloket. It's a debate among the Tanaim, who is the them. And I don't remember which says which. I apologize between Rabbi Kiva and Rishmael. But one says God gives the Kohanim blessing and they bless the people. Mm-hmm. And the other says the Kohanim are simply a vessel for God's blessing to go through them towards the people. So either the Kohanim are in a position of simply being like a pathway, a tube of some kind of divine energy flowing through them to the people, or they have to receive this great gift from God, but that gift is only to be bestowed upon the people that they are blessing. The people are the ultimate recipients of this. So if we're going to summarize, I would say, again, what are the secrets of what makes national leaders great? What is Moshe hoping to leave with the people as a legacy, as a living legacy before he dies and before he leaves them? You know, what makes the judges great? Their ability to listen deeply to all sides of an argument and to judge impartially, if there is such a thing. What makes a king or a head of state great? Their ability to limit their power to serve the very people who are bowing to them, to know that they're actually civil servants, and to learn Torah, to have one eye on how society is with all of its flaws, and the other eye on what society can become, to learn Torah and see themselves as brother, as one of the people. And what makes a Kohen or Levite great? Their ability to serve as the conduit for the blessing of God to the people and the service of the people to God. Right, and each one of them are given limits, right? Each one of them is told you have limits and you have to respect those limits. The Kohen doesn't have land. He can't become wealthy. The king, as you pointed out, has limits even in his military, his personal wealth, how many wives he can take. And the judges need to be limited by the truth of the Torah and their ability to stay impartial and not push their own agenda. So... I hear the common theme with all of these, which is really brilliant, that if I understand you correctly, that good leadership is really created by humility and a sense of service to others. So what would you say is your personal takeaway from all of this, and how do you try to do this in your own life? I always like to end my learning with a personal question and say, you know, not what historically did people do, but really what are we able to take from this? I probably took that from you. (laughs) So we're leaders in lots of places in our lives, right? Leadership begins at home, at work, in our communities. I'm a leader as a parent. You know, if I make decisions for other people, that already makes me a leader, right? If I guide other people or serve as a role model for other people, as a teacher, I'm also a leader. In my community, I'm also a leader in certain ways. And so really in all of those areas of life that are very, very close to home for me and close to work for me, this idea of leadership that says a lot to me in terms of humility. I think when I was younger and had less confidence in myself and wanted to sort of, you know, make myself seem more powerful, especially with my children, you know, I think I would shout slogans at them sometime, time for bed, get in the bath, you know. And then get so frustrated when they didn't do what you asked them to do. Like, what's going on here? I'm the parent and I just told you and why aren't you doing it? Exactly. And the older they got and the older I got, I think that I realized the value of limiting my power and of machloket and being able to say, okay, you don't want to do something, so let's talk about it. Let me hear your position, you hear my position, and let's be able to have a nuanced conversation about what it is that we each want and what's going to work for both of us. You know, it's very beautiful because what I hear you saying is that beyond the structural leadership that Moshe is putting out there of a judiciary and spiritual leadership and political leadership, the central theme of how we come to a place of humility and openness openness and not really seeing everything as a reflection of my worth and my kavod. I see that in teaching and parenting all the time, right? That if I want to teach well, so I feel like I'm a good teacher or they're going to remember what I said. 
And as a parent, right, when our children choose things that we don't agree with or we don't want or we don't think it's even best, right, that temptation to want it to be the way I want it to be. And here you're telling us, even more so, the more authority, power, influence you have, the more this idea of humility and openness and and patience with others and really recognition of where you are in the world, an accurate reflection where you are in the world is just so critical to the success and well-being of ourselves and the people around us. For both, for ourselves and the others, right? Maybe I'll just finish with sort of a last comment, which is the question that I want to leave myself with is where can I make the effort to look less at my own reflection in the window and to look beyond into the eyes of my child, my partner, my chavruta, my students, my workers, and even and maybe especially my rivals, people who think differently than I do, to listen deeply to what is important to them and to witness their soul. Beautiful. So if you had one blessing to offer our current Jewish leadership, what blessing do you want to offer them? I would offer them the blessing to know that we're all in this together, that everything that we do is going to have an impact on other people. And we have to be very, very careful and cautious about how we hold dialogue, not shouting slogans at each other and not just criticizing or bashing each other, but really opening up honest dialogue in Machloket so that we can live together and make good decisions for ourselves and the other. Yeah, and as Ravi Avner said, to be in a conversation or a debate where I don't want to defeat the other person, I want to come to a some kind of understanding with that other person. And I think right now we are very busy trying to defeat each other. And I think that mindset, as you've pointed out very beautifully here, can get us in a lot of trouble. Well, I've learned a lot. I feel very challenged. I certainly see these pitfalls in my own life and my own behavior probably too often. I don't think I'll be able to walk past a car again without being reminded of this lesson. That might be the best feature here, folks, is every time you look at a car window, you can be reminded of, are you seeing the other person or are you looking at yourself? It's such a beautiful image that you gave us. and such a beautiful tool, like a life hack to remind us of our mindset. So I really want to thank you so much for joining and and sharing your wisdom. My pleasure. Thank you for being my chavruta today. Well, this was a lot of fun for me. I'm sure you all enjoyed it as well. Please listen in for next week, and I want to wish all of you, and Tovalea does too, a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.